what we're doing from a land stewardship perspective is we're improving our land within ourselves. We're very conscious of wanting to do that. So if the wider community is prepared to pay us for that, well, that's, that's great. Hi, I'm Susie. And I'm James. And you're listening to Soils for Life. Each episode, we're bringing you stories about soil, the opportunities in the ground and the challenges above it. In this episode, we're looking at collaboration and landscape stewardship. As the impacts of climate disruption are felt on our agricultural landscapes, many farmers are looking to alternative methods of farming and to market schemes. We recognise that rebuilding our agricultural soils and landscapes is driven from the ground up and starts with farmers, particularly with groups of farmers, supporting each other to step out of the safety of the known and to try out new ideas and approaches. We're exploring this journey through a group of farmers known as the Eight Families, located around the Eastern Riverine of New South Wales. One of the defining features of this group is that they are not only a community of practice, but a community of place. They provide a model for what is possible when regenerative farmers sharing the same landscape come together to support each other. In this episode, we'll hear from some of the group about how and why they came together, their consideration of environmental markets, and the benefits of working through those together. My name is Michael Gooden. My wife and I farm on a property, uh, Willow Lee, which is in the River Arena. Beef trading and a cattle stud, about 380 hectares, all under time-controlled grazing. The millennium drought was really tough in our area. That period of time really made us think and challenge what we're, we're doing. Financially was a big reason, but also ecologically. I think the ecological part I didn't really become aware of until I actually sort of literally took the blinkers off and started being a bit more observant. The financial part of it was really obvious. We were just not making money as a business. And we were going through succession planning, you know, looking at balance sheets and splitting up assets here and there. And, you know, we did that a couple of times over a three or four year period. And all of a sudden, these balance sheets weren't nearly as healthy as what they were like, you know, five or six years previously. I think I was really fortunate though to be in that position and, you know, forever grateful for my parents and the rest of our family to be given that opportunity to be able to do things our own way. I think if we had probably stayed together as a family, we wouldn't have been able to achieve what we did. During the years after the millennium drought, Michael took part in a holistic management workshop hosted by Bruce Ward and Alan Savory. And it was here that the Eight Families Group was formed. So we've been involved with the Eight Families sort of since its inception. At its core, it's a support group, a management group. So that's morphed over the period of time. It's been going sort of 10 or so years. So now it's almost like, well, it is like our family. We're probably more business orientated, ecological orientated, but we've supported each other through thick and thin. You know, there's been births, deaths, marriages, divorces, you know, you name it. We've sort of been through that emotional roller coaster as a group. Now you think that eight families would consist of eight families, but now there's one more. Let's hear from number nine. Hi, I'm Rebecca Gorman. I live on uh, Yabtree West, which is in the uh, southwest slopes of New South Wales. So we bought the farm in 2013 and in 2014 we started holistic management training. I wasn't in the group to start. They all did holistic management training together. 
but I live very close to two members of the group and so they very kindly um, snuck me in. So we've actually got nine families in the eight families <laughs> group and uh, they were exploring doing direct marketing of beef at that time and created a name. That's why we're as a group we've, we're called, we've got a name, eight families. For me in particular, coming in as the kind of most inexperienced member, I just can't say enough about how brilliant they have all been in helping me step through the process of the decisions that you have to make every day about what you're going to do with your business and your farm. And they're both not judgmental at all, but highly accountable. So you're not allowed to get away with anything, but, you know, they're not going to say, oh, gee, you've done a rotten thing. They're just very supportive of helping you make the decisions. So Rebecca, it sounds like the group has been a supportive space to help you apply some new ideas and approaches. So Michael, what role has the eight families played in your holistic journey? You go back sort of 10 years and we really had to sort of hunker down together because it just wasn't the, the level of people around. Now, there wasn't the Region Ag Facebook page or there wasn't these other discussion groups, the podcasts, all that type of thing that was going on. There was really only a few people here and there doing a few crazy things. And so initially it was a really big support. And I know from our own perspective, we wouldn't have got through those first couple of years without being able to see what what had been achieved by other people had sort of gone before us and also knowing that they'd had the same issues that we we were facing and that they'd overcome them and managed to. And in a lot of ways, we sort of took a few shortcuts because some of those issues that had occurred early on were like, well, we did that and it didn't work. And it was like, right, oh, well, let's not make that mistake then. What I'm hearing is that learning from other people's failures can be really helpful in agriculture where mistakes can be extremely costly. Rebecca, how have you grappled with the big decisions on your journey? One of the principles of holistic management training is that you're probably wrong. Uh, You might have a vision, you might have a plan, you might set out on that plan, but if you stubbornly stick to it, then you might come a buster. And so if you if you've, you know, you've got your context and your vision, you've got a plan, but if you keep in the back of your mind that it probably isn't quite right somewhere, so start looking back at what it is. Are you getting the outcomes that you're really seeking? And I think um, the great thing about that mindset is that it means you're always open to uh, learning something new and you're always open to discussing how things have turned out for them. And so... You come into an eight families meeting, for example, and we have an agenda. And the very first thing we do is that we go around and say, okay, how are we each feeling now? We call it the whiffle, what I feel like expressing. And, you know, within that, you can talk about how rotten you're feeling emotionally about something that's happening or how great you're feeling about a cattle trade that you've done, just done or anything And uh, we keep it short, you know, those kind of things could go on all day, really. But over the years, everyone has, um, when when things that are really tough come up, uh, that's the place to do it. And then everyone knows that we need to come back to that person and, and let them talk that through and then see if they need help. And then after we go away, you know, to, to check in with them. Being part of a community is key to mental health and emotional well-being. 
Through the years, I've drawn on my mother's group and book club, but you guys sound a little bit more organised. Well, we don't drink as much wine as my wife's book club, apparently. Ultimately, we need to be responsible for our own business and taking on our own, you know, making sure things are under control. But it, it's just that, that sort of context of being able to share ideas and, you know, um, bounce ideas around, give yourself confidence, you know, if you are having a difficulty with some of the decisions that you're trying to make. I think that everyone in the group really understands the benefit that they've received personally from having that group uh, dynamic and, and the information that's been shared. Uh, for me, it's a, it gets back to that classic sort of the core of the holistic management is that the individuals are, are greater together. The, the You know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so, you know, for other people getting into this, I really encourage you to try and get into some groups like this uh, and you'll be able to create that support network and that'll help you get through some of those challenges that, that do occur no matter what at what stage you're at and what you're up to. Some farmers wanting to start farming regeneratively have a challenge knowing which things to try first. In many ways, it's about allowing nature to take the lead and skillfully following. Whereas there's an aspect of trying to control nature that has emerged in the last hundred years or so that we're looking to overcome. The challenge when you're running a business is with certainty. You need a management approach that can follow nature and still generate a reliable profit. Many people assume you can't and they want to see the data, which there hasn't been much of, but more and more is coming out now. Rebecca wanted to be confident that her management was working. And so she joined another farmer cooperative called Land to Market, which focuses on monitoring and measuring ecological changes on her farm because you can make the assumption that your ecology is improving when you're attempting to do this regenerative work. But unless you do really good monitoring and regular monitoring and have, you know, a level of independence to it, so it's not just you out there, you know, kicking the dirt yourself, it's very hard to know whether your management is actually succeeding. And there's no point in us just thinking that rotational grazing works. How the co-op works is that each farm gets an initial baseline assessment of various aspects of the farm, including soil health and biodiversity. And then they follow up on monitoring to see if your land management is leading to improvements over the years. We've been doing it for four years now and we do, uh, we've been kind of stamped as ecologically improving. We have our ecological outcome verification seal the verification is not just a pat on the back for farmers. It is being used as a brand to market these practices to consumers to obtain a premium price for their produce. So that's the kind of idea of the uh, land to market cooperative is that you support farmers to get their management right and then you build relationships with retailers and wholesalers to try and get that product through to the consumer. So this is a, in some ways a story about the value of being in a group of peers where you're all doing the same thing and you get support from each other, but also the people in the group can hold you accountable so they can ask you if you've done the thing that you said you'd do. Sometimes people can have a bit more discipline when they work in a group together and they can also feel supported. I think one of the great things about Land to Market is that their monitoring approach helps farmers learn ways 
to be more in touch with their land have a greater awareness about how to follow nature and how to follow it like a surfer might surf on the ocean in that they read the currents and they work with it and they can record statistics and make measurements of how their farm is responding to nature and their management. Yes, and land to market's approach is to reward farmers through the consumer. But there are a range of financial opportunities and incentives available to farmers. And whether to participate in these emerging environmental markets is something that the eight families have been grappling with. It's just complex, isn't it? How do you create a financial instrument that is pure enough to only do good things? We know that there are unintended consequences for almost everything we do. And a lot of the agricultural policies over the years have thought they were doing great things to stimulate something and have turned out to be ecologically, for example, terrible, have terrible outcomes. So how do we know that the way we're structuring the carbon ideas and the biodiversity ideas now that that it won't have some unintended consequence. Like many farmers, Rebecca is questioning whether these environmental markets will have the desired outcomes. So James, do you think the carbon market can actually help farmers to transition to more regenerative farming practices? I think it might play a role with some farmers. We know that practices that increase soil carbon are generally good farming practices anyway. So recognising people for sequestering carbon, if it's the one thing that changes their mind, that might help. But the schemes that come about which do financially reward farmers will be important. We'll just have to take care with them to make sure that they get the outcomes that we want. Kim Deans is a regenerative agricultural consultant and she has reservations about the environmental markets, although she's extremely impressed with the amount of data that's been gathered. She's just worried that we might be repeating past mistakes. Kim, there are risks for farmers in transitioning to regenerative practices. Do you see environmental markets as a way to combat that risk? There are financial risks involved in the transition. Definitely. And they can be mitigated, but there's no quick way to move through that. But there's no quick way to restore soil carbon either. It won't happen overnight. I think what's needed is for people to have strategies that actually apply to their situation and be really good at managing the financial aspect of that transition. Because I think to me, when we transition in agriculture and we're trying to make a system more regenerative, we need to manage our money really well. We need to manage our people really well. And that's the mindset part (laughs) as well as our communication and, you know, making sure we look after ourselves through that process and we don't run ourselves down if we want to be regenerative. And we also have to look after our natural capital and they all interlink and interweave. So with that in mind, we need to take a much more holistic approach to regenerating our landscapes. Therefore, are carbon markets really the way to go? For years, I've been encouraging farmers to restore soil carbon. And I've taken the approach that, you know, soil carbon is going to be a benefit to you anyway. And it's a benefit because it's going to, it's the foundation of soil health. It's the foundation of the physical, biological and mineral health in the soil. It's the foundation of healing water cycles 
and resilience and profitability in businesses. There's been studies that have shown that, you know, soil organic matter is a more reliable driver of profit than yield. So, you know, I've been taking that tack and saying, well, if soil carbon happens, that's a bonus, you know. But then as these programs are starting to roll out and become a lot more common, I've noticed this sense of sitting on the fence with it and, um not, I wasn't able to put my finger on it for a while. And then one day I just woke up to what, what I was feeling uneasy about was the fact we're monetizing nature. So to me, when we monetize and commodify nature, are we actually accidentally reducing its value? Because, you know, there are many forms of wealth, not just money. And, you know, the economic way we operate in worlds created the pollution and a lot of the degradation in the first place because we're converting natural resources to money and living on it like income not like an asset (laughs) so you know are we applying the same kind of thinking and expecting different results we now trade water (laughs) and we have got water shortages and a murray darling basin with rivers dying and people not getting water so putting a dollar value on water hasn't created any solutions to those environmental issues that we face As our soils continue to degrade globally, are carbon markets really the answer to getting carbon back into soils? If we really want to see long-term actual change in a system, we have to find completely new ways of doing things. And that's, as humans, we resist that. So we'll throw dollars at things rather than look at really closely our our paradigms because we're so in them we can't always see them we're like a fish in water we don't know we're in water you know till we're out of it so our paradigms are really challenging to change and shift but I think I so I then when I think about that I think if we're converting natural capital to dollars are we changing paradigms or are we just still using the old one and what would a paradigm shift look like in terms of this that's the big question i'm asking and what would it take for us in agriculture to make that shift often we need to be forced to change things need to get tough and are we using the same mindset and expecting a different result or are we truly transcending paradigms that is the question i'm sitting with How do we make that shift to a new system from our current paradigm? Well, I think that's part of the problem is that there doesn't seem to be any easy answers at this point. Paradigm shifts aren't always about looking for something new, but reimagining things like our current diet, who farms and on what land, and embracing an Indigenous perspective. Providing another alternative framework to participate in environmental markets centred around community and collaboration is the not-for-profit Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. Founder Rowan Foley is full of optimism about the future. As the carbon trading industry grows, so does the opportunity for healing country. So we take a very different approach. We don't take the strong conservation approach. We take a very community development approach. So we pioneered the peer-to-peer strengths-based approach, which has now been recognised by the Australian Human Rights Commission as being best practice. And that leads to a premium product being sold in the marketplace. So carbon credits with environmental, social and cultural values, which is the top of the tree. The foundation supports carbon farming projects led by Indigenous rangers 
It connects Aboriginal communities who supply carbon credits with organisations looking to offset their emissions and provides training for Indigenous rangers. Well, farmers who want to do the right thing, they want to work with traditional owners that have signed an Indigenous land use agreement or supported a native title claim, or the traditional owners obtain a, a percentage of the income from the sale of carbon credits. They're called farmer credits, and they can be sold on the voluntary market for a premium dollar. You can sell the base commodity, which is a carbon credit, or you can sell a carbon credit with environmental, social and cultural values. And that's, that's where we come in. There's no greenwashing that all the values are substantiated and the way that we go about verifying or substantiating those claims is through the core benefits verification framework. The framework is officially recognised under the Queensland Government Land Restoration Fund as the official framework for any First Nations co-benefits and it differs from other existing approaches that use a prescribed set of indicators and require external auditors to do the verification. So no shiny bums from down south coming into the projects. It's peer-to-peer. It's about skilling up and training up uh, rangers and traditional owners to work with each other. It's a brand new approach. It's only 65,000 years old. So we're not coming in saying, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, I've got a checklist. We don't use that approach. It's whatever you're proud of. There's no indicator bank. There's no checklist. You know, when you yarn them with the other farmer, you know, one of the questions we'll be asking, well, 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 mate, what are you proud of? You know, he says, well, you know, we do water management here very well. And you go, okay, well, how does that work? He says, oh, well, jump in the Toyota, mate, I'll show you. So, Rebecca, thinking about the regenerative journey you've been on, what are you really proud of? That's a, just a lovely question, isn't it? And probably that is a great question for farmers to ask themselves, gee, even that notion of what you're proud of, it's a slightly challenging thing just saying that you're proud of something in your management because that might suggest, you know, that you're crowing about your your management when in fact, you know, I might be getting it wrong. (laughs) But I think seeing the 100% ground cover, when we first came, our property hadn't been managed badly at all, but there was still lots of bare ground in various places. And I used to think the goal of 100% ground cover was a lofty one and that, oh gosh, you know, that'll be hard to get to. But now I have to remind myself that that was a goal because we've pretty much got 100% ground cover everywhere and so much ground cover that it's fantastic. That's a really great mindset to actually put yourself in. Being asked that question would be really great to be asked that when you're out on your farm. What are you proud of? I've got a long list of things on our property, I know, but some of the data that's come up out of this Soils for Life case study, there was some of the um, Sentinel satellite imagery that showed that our ground cover was higher throughout those drought periods than, than it was in the surrounding areas. So that's something, you know, that's something we're consciously making a decision to maintain or improve. So that, you know, it was a tangible outcome. I'm proud of the animals that we're running on the place and the capacity that they've got to be able to improve landscape. I really enjoy that side of it. I'm certainly proud of the direction that our farm's heading. Michael and Rebecca have made some tangible improvements to their landscapes and there's an opportunity for them to be rewarded for that work. There's a big market for people wanting to invest in natural capital. 
the environmental service and governance sort of arm of all, a lot of the corporations now want to be able to invest in the natural capital. So I'm pretty confident that that market will sort itself out. Uh, we're making decisions for our, you know, not only our children, but for our children's children. So the time frame that we're wanting to deal with is, is a very long one. So things will come and go. And at the moment, you know, this could be sort of the flavour of the month, the flavour of the decade. So if it's, if it's an opportunity for us, we want to be part of it. Your motivation for the soil carbon project should be the production benefits that you're going to achieve through better water holding capacity, better nutrient cycling, better soil structure, all those benefits. Any monetary component that you get on top through the actual sale of soil carbon is a real bonus at this point. And, you know, there's some significant costs uh, associated with setting a project up. And, you know, you've got to understand that you're signing a 25-year contract and, you know, there's a permanence agreement there. There is that additionality. There's a few things in there. They're not insurmountable, but they're not to be taken lightly, I suppose. So the motivation to do it, you know, if you're going into a soil carbon project to make a quick buck, I think that's probably not the right attitude. As a group at the moment, we're in the throes of doing a soil carbon project, not necessarily together because that was going to be too complicated, but certainly doing it together in terms of, uh, the efficiencies of the baselining costs we're wanting to share amongst, or not share amongst the group, but reduce by, you know, getting more in the area to come and baseline all at the same time to reduce that cost. But they're all still going to be individual projects under the individual businesses. Before going down the path of registering a carbon project, the eight families consulted with a number of organisations and carbon project developers to evaluate their options. One of those was CarbonLink. My name's Taz Lone. I'm a carbon advisory officer with uh, CarbonLink, but I'm also a farmer at the same time um, down in, in Bass Strait on King Island. CarbonLink is a, a project developer, so we work with farmers and uh, take them from end-to-end solution, from doing their project plan and registering the project, their sampling and, and setting it all up with the clean energy regulator. There's some very normal concerns. Um, some of them are around family succession. Some of them are around uh, what if I want to sell part of my property. And these are very real uh, issues that we have to work our way around. Uh, sometimes people will leave a little bit out of the, their uh, carbon project so that they do have that option. Um, if I want to sell, to sell part of the place, that is. If I want to sell the whole place, then you know, the, the uh, incoming landholder has the responsibility to take on that project and will be responsible for um, continuing on with it. Or you could uh, you know, um, close it out, but that, that's uh, another story. Then there's thoughts about, oh, what if we have really bad drought or fire, etc. What happens? Should I start a soil carbon project in a really tough season? If I start in a really good season, oh, it won't be as good. Oh, I've done all the hard work already. These are the sort of questions that come along all the time. From the experience that we have with our second round sampling that was done last year on, on uh, 16,000 hectares of carbon estimation area. They're all pertinent questions uh, about when I should start and when I shouldn't or what if there's drought, but at the end of the day we've, we've discovered that these guys have all been through two to three years of drought. One of them had fire. Um, they've actually stored carbon further down into the profile in that 30 to 120 centimetre mark, and uh, that's a harder place to get it but it's also a very stable place to, to store it so some of these little concerns on a year in year out basis they're pertinent but from a you know a longer term perspective they're really it's a non-issue. So Ian many farmers would like to see carbon projects integrated with biodiversity credits and other forms of natural capital recognition. 
So at the moment we, we predominantly soil carbon. We do have the capacity to work in the veg space as well. Uh, however, you know, within the next 12 months, and even sooner for that matter, um, we, we expect to see these um, integrated farm management methods appearing on the scene and they'll be able to put, be put alongside the soil carbon projects. So for those that are holding back, waiting for that, it's, that's the beauty of, of what we've got in front of us. But I think these integrated methods um, will certainly make it a little bit more economical for some of the smaller producers to be able to carry out a, a carbon project on their farm. And I think it all ties into actually where we're, we're trying to go. The more biodiversity we have on our farm and the, the better a soil carbon project is most likely to work, provided that you know, we've got active management of plants in our system and, and not just locking country up. Mm -hmm. But it, the systems that we've been using for the last couple of hundred years, um, yeah, we've been degenerating our soil unwittingly, I guess, and at the, the expense of our soil health and our, our farm health. And this is a good way to turn that around. And, and I want to see farmers uh, leave their land in better shape, i.e. higher um, soil organic carbon levels than when they either took it on or when they started the process. And you can talk 10 years, we can talk 100 years, but they're leaving a better place for the future generation or the next owner of that land with that improved practices of farming. Like Ian was saying, there's a few challenges there for farmers. Some of the challenges for the aggregators are around getting enough farmers into a scheme so that they've got sufficient scale, but also developing affordable and robust systems for measuring carbon in a verifiable fashion. Regulators have challenges when it comes to both achieving additionality, that's making sure that farmers wouldn't have just done the thing anyway, we're spending the money and not getting an additional benefit, but also avoiding the moral hazard of not recognising good work that people have already done and can't be recognised for because there was no scheme to recognise them for it when they started doing this work. I spoke to Michael about this. So Michael, you've already increased the carbon in your soils and any practice change you do to increase carbon further will need to be additional from the time you entered into the agreement. What options do you have to further increase soil carbon on your farm? From my understanding with the new methodologies, the additionality rules in those are very favourable. You know, there's very few people who would have done all those various things that couldn't add some addition to the change of practice down the track. And, you know, in our situation, like we like to think that we're reasonably forward thinking with what we're up to. And we've still got certainly will and truly a few things up our sleeve from our land management plan when we implement a soil carbon project. And I suppose the, the two things for us is probably looking at one, intensifying our grazing, and then also um, looking at adding the biologies uh, into the soil. So either putting that in medicating that through our water system or and or putting that on seed um, so and sowing some multi-species crop so they're probably the things up our sleeve that yeah we're looking at we've got very good records of our grazing side for the last sort of five or six years we've been using the my grazing to record our you know a, a digital grazing chart you know if we start intensifying our grazing and you know adding some supplements in, some fertiliser in to hopefully increase our grass production and improve our soil health. We've got a pretty good handle on our ability to be able to measure that. As well as carbon project developers, the eight families also met with the Biodiversity Conservation Trust, which works with farmers to develop conservation agreements on private land. 
My name's Dewa Reinders and I'm the Regional Manager for the Murray Riverina region of the Biodiversity Conservation Trust. Uh, I'm based down in Albury um, and our region goes basically from Balranal to Tumbarumba. Biodiversity Conservation Trust, we work with landholders to set up what are essentially the equivalent of national parks on private land. So it's private land conservation managed by the landholders who own the land, they make the decisions about the land, but we support them to protect and manage their biodiversity. We have lots of landholders that protect area on their land just to manage, manage it in perpetuity for biodiversity and others that really set it up not only for that but also to be an integral part of their business. Um, so it provides them with uh, diversified income and, and a definite annual income stream that they know will protect that biodiversity and also assist with their business management. Look, with respect to carbon projects and our biodiversity conservation agreements, um, it is possible to stack them. However, it is before you do that, before you embark on it, you really need to talk to us and the clean energy regulator because there's situations where it's not possible and there is situations where we've done it and it really comes down to the detail of the project and our type of conservation agreement. Yeah, at the moment, uh, the Biodiversity Conservation Trust puts covenants over remnant vegetation, so really high quality conservation um, lands. But we're looking at options for maybe where carbon credits and particularly the environmental plantings method might be able to add value to those remnants, like it's particularly in highly modified landscapes. There's probably opportunities for environmental plantings to be, able to be able to provide linkages between remnant patches or to grow remnant patches and therefore make some really great additions to our biodiversity values in those highly modified landscapes. And so that's the sort of thing we're sort of investigating at the moment. What are you hearing from farmers about their concerns? Look, to be honest, I think that there's just so much on offer and it's a really fast-moving space and I, I feel for landholders because there is, there's carbon, is sort of an emerging market, there's, um, you know, what the Biodiversity Conservation Trust offers. We've only been around four years. Uh, we have different programs and new programs coming on board. We've got tenders around the state, which may be in your area in the coming years. Um, there's a whole suite of things out there and I think especially for things that are long term like carbon or biodiversity conservation out programs, people really want to know, you know what is the best option for them and what's around the corner that they may not be eligible for if they adopt something now. So I think that'll be probably one of the biggest concerns that we're asked regularly. It's like with any business decision, ask lots of questions, get your head around it, Think about what are your values, what are your objectives for your property um, and ask lots of questions but also investigate all your options and you really have to sit down as a, a family or, or land managers and work out what's best for you. Because so many things are changing so quickly at the moment, it is quite difficult for people to make a decision and in many ways it's, it's about taking a bet. We might see new schemes developed that recognise the needs of farmers better and are better schemes to sign up to, but if you're already involved in an existing scheme, you might not have access to them. So it is quite hard for people. Yes, it's about the changing market, but it's also about the changing climate. And I asked Rebecca if she's concerned about entering a carbon agreement in the face of climate change. There's, you know, the big climate and then you, there's your local climate. Yes, the big climate movements could make a difference to your carbon agreement, but you could also be able to mitigate the impact of that by getting your management on farm right. And we also know that you can have an impact 
on your local water cycle. Like in the case of myself, I've got two neighbours who are managing similarly to me. And if we all are managing like that, then perhaps you can start, you can genuinely start having an impact on your local water cycle. One of the things that we do know is that farmers that change their practices to increase the soil carbon or increase the biodiversity on their property, their landscapes and their businesses have more resilience to the type of climate shocks like droughts and floods that we can expect more of in the future. So perhaps when we're looking at these environmental markets as a catalyst for landscape change, we need to think about them at a catchment scale. Well, catchment scale work is the holy grail when it comes to natural resource management. The question really becomes, how many landholders do you need to get involved to affect the whole catchment? But the more people you can get in any catchment, the more likely you are to have a positive effect on how water systems work or how biodiversity is affected because most biodiversity systems are deeply connected with water. The eight families highlights the opportunities for working at a catchment scale. Along their journey, the group also consulted with Regen Farmers Mutual, a farmer-owned business representing the interests of farmers in engaging with environmental markets. We spoke with the founder, Andrew Ward. So the Regen Farmers Mutual came about because farmers that we were talking to had identified a, like a failing market in the carbon space. They were already hyper vigilant about market failures because of the water market. And collectively, these farmers co-designed a way for themselves to go to market with a broker that's farmer-owned and has farmers' best interests at heart. So the result has been Regen Farmers Mutual, designed by farmers for farmers to be the major beneficiary of that brokering business. Collective makes sense in that fixed costs of a project um, can be shared by more people and, and reduce the costs for each individually. But what we've also found is you can't, you know, do the compliance on your own project. So you actually need peers to be able to review one another's projects and give that data any integrity. Now, once you're learning from one another about what's working, what's not working, what the challenges are, what the in-context things are, you can learn without making those same mistakes individually. And you can learn whilst getting those advantages collectively. So th there's nothing magic about it. It's just the shared experiences informing better decision making. Regen Farmers Mutual is looking at how any environmental stewardship programs can be considered at a catchment scale to build natural disaster resilience, as no farm is an island. So when you're going to make an environmental impact, it has to be at a scale that involves more than one farmer. And that the incentives need to be there to go from, say, 0 to 15% to make a material difference but then encourage the 16th to the 95th percent to also participate so that you're actually getting ecological outcomes. And so what we need our monies to do is to direct at scale, catchment-wide, farmer-coordinated activities. Then you can have an effect on flood and drought. Uh, it worries me in the Northern Rivers, you know, one of the suggestions is that their flood recovery program might be in the next 10 years, spend, you know, 
10% from, uh, from headwaters to uh, the mouth of the river or vice versa. Now, if you're doing less than 15%, right, you're going to have 10 years, 100%, nothing done. You actually need to have an open transaction, encourage a lot more people into it, coordinate their activities. And, yeah, that's more about farmers in a region cooperating than it is about what I'm doing on my farm, which, whilst important locally, doesn't have the same ecological impact. What we're trying to do is get economies of scope rather than economies of scale. So what are the approaches that lead to economic and environmental outcomes? How can they be adapted within contexts? What are the approaches that lend to efficiency? Let's use open source software as opposed to proprietary software. Let's work with NRMs to make sure that the government money and the private markets are aligned to get better outcomes. We want farmers to be economically rewarded for doing environmentally good things. These stewardship programs and these emerging markets look like a way for farmers to be economically rewarded for doing good environmental things. So they can play a role in either catalyzing or reinforcing behavior based on providing an economic incentive. And I think it's good because we've had lots of sticks around environmental approach, regulation, but we haven't had too many carrots, and so by using both the carrot and the stick, we should get better compliance, we should get better performance, both economically and environmentally. It's really been a bit of a journey. You know, once you start getting curious with what's going on, all these things start coming together, and whether that's, you know, KLR marketing or natural sequence farming or holistic management, you know, RCS, the grazing for profit. Once you start getting the thirst for knowledge and, and how your knowledge can help improve not only your own landscape, but you know, I'm in the real fortunate position to be able to influence other people. Yeah, it's really an exciting spot to be. One of the things I've been so surprised about is just how generous and open and knowledgeable the regenerative ag community is. Supportive, and rigorous with their thinking, you know, not stuck on a paradigm and open to shifting and just an amazingly intellectual and emotionally great community. So I, I want to thank that community, everyone in the eight families. They've just been really so generous and incredible and it's enhanced my life immeasurably. This podcast has been produced by Grow Love Project in collaboration with Soils for Life and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's Smart Farms Program. The episode was mixed and edited by Edgar Sgreste and we'd like to thank all our guests for their time and insights. For more information, check out the links in the show notes sign up to the Soils for Life newsletter and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.